the bottom line is that if we are creating a whole pool of kids addicted to nicotine through e-cigarettes, some proportion of them are going to become long-term users of combustible tobacco that otherwise might never have initiated on tobacco. And all the great gains that we've made in this country, reducing smoking rates, and you saw the data that came out today showing smoking rates have continued to come down, and also stigmatizing smoking among young people so that we're reducing the pool of future smokers. All of that will be reversed or lost if we can't address the youth use of e-cigarettes. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb vowing to crack down on e-cigarette sales to young Americans. I just sat down with the FDA Commissioner right as news was breaking about the FDA's plan to widely ban sales of flavored e-cigarettes in an effort to curb teen use. Now, Commissioner Gottlieb couldn't comment on news reports, but he did detail what the agency is thinking and what he's called an epidemic ahead of a formal announcement next week. But someone who can break down the latest news and tee up what you're about to hear from Commissioner Gottlieb is my colleague, Sarah Overmall, who's been covering the e-cigarette beat. We'll get to both of those conversations in a moment, but first a reminder, if you like Pulse Check, if you like being able to hear us put questions directly to Commissioner Gottlieb and other top officials, you can help us by keeping the podcast going. Every rating or review on iTunes is helpful, and please send suggestions too. You can find me at ddiamondpolitico.com by email. And check the show notes for time cues and additional information about the topics we discuss. And with that, here's my conversation with Sarah Overmall, Politico Health Reporter. Sarah, how are you? Good. Big day. <laughs> it was widely expected that the FDA was going to issue some moves to crack down on e-cigarette sales. But what is actually going to happen, what news reports have suggested, is that the ban is going to be fairly widespread and where these cigarettes will be, these e-cigarettes will be sold. Did the e-cigarette makers see this coming? I think to a certain extent they did, especially the focus on flavored vapors and the teen appeal of them. The FDA last week had released a summary of its conversations with e-cig makers where banning flavored products had come up. Uh... Altria also had preempted them about, by about a week, uh, announcing that they would voluntarily pull their flavored e-cigarettes off the market. And so you could kind of see that as a bellwether. Another thing that Altria had announced last week uh, was that they were going to back raising the age to buy all tobacco products to 21, which even surprised a few other people in the tobacco market and e-cig market. So you could see that even as something that they are potentially anticipating as well. And just to, to key in on that, raising the age limit from 18 around the country to 21 is opposed by the tobacco industry historically. Right, exactly. I don't smoke. I don't understand all of the specifics here. Why would the FDA leave out menthol flavors in, in its pending actions? Well, so the the FDA has already banned flavored cigarettes, but they have left menthol cigarettes on the market. And that is something that Commissioner Gottlieb has talked about wanting to revisit. But in the meantime, they haven't done that. So the issue is, if you ban menthol e-cigarettes, are you therefore making traditional cigarettes more attractive again to smokers, maybe some that have quit, maybe some that are trying to quit? So it's about striking a balance. They recognize that there's a really big problem in teen use, but they want to make sure that traditional smokers and people that have quit stick to e-cigarettes, which everyone agrees are healthier than traditional tobacco products. There's one uh, e-cig lobbyist who once told me you wouldn't 
give a recovering alcoholic a whiskey flavored drink. So you don't want to just leave recovering smokers with just a tobacco flavored product. And these products, the balance that Gottlieb and others are trying to walk is to make them appealing enough for the recovering adult smokers, but not so cool that younger smokers want to switch on. And in our earlier podcast with a top jewel executive, Tevi Troy, we talked about how cool some of these products actually look and why that can be a difficult balance to strike because they need to be somewhat cool, but not so trendy as to get teenagers hooked on them too. FDA Commissioner Gottlieb has teased a formal announcement next week. You're our reporter here. What are you watching for? Well, I think that there is definitely going to be more in that announcement than the flavored products ban. Uh, like we said, Altria has already sort of preempted with some things that they want to see. So maybe we will see something about age limits in next week's plan. Also, we have to remember that this is a very quick reaction to a very specific issue, teen use. But like we said, they want to strike a balance for adult smokers as well. They have pushed back actually formally regulating the industry until 2022. So they've got a few more years to outline what it can look like from this point onwards, how flavored products can come back to the market, and how they are going to make sure that adult smokers continue switching. I would note that on Thursday, the same day that this announcement came out, the CDC released figures saying that smoking is at an all-time low. I think that the FDA wants to make sure that that trend continues, and they're going to be looking at e-cigarettes as a part of that in the future. Well, we will be looking at your coverage of the pending e-cigarette announcement next week. And Sarah Overmall, thank you for joining Politico Pulse Check, making your debut. First-time caller, long-time listener. (laughs) We're glad to have you. (laughs) And now you'll hear my conversation with Commissioner Gottlieb. I sat down with him for about an hour at HHS headquarters in Washington, D.C. on Thursday. You'll hear we get to e-cigarettes pretty quickly in our talk, but also hit on topics like his leadership of FDA, how he thinks about balancing science and politics, in this administration, opioid policies that he is leading, and much, much more. Remember to use the show notes to find time cues to locate parts of the conversation. And now, here's Commissioner Gottlieb. In, in one of your last interviews with Politico at our pro summit, you made the comment that, quote, an almond doesn't lactate. Now, this was part of your broader push to move away from terms like almond milk and soy milk. You've made that point before, but it really blew up. Now that comment is is a t-shirt. Late night hosts mocked uh, the, the idea and, and ran clips. By the way, the first person to seamlessly work the phrase an almond doesn't lactate into their wedding vows and sends me a video gets, I don't know, a t-shirt. Were you surprised by that reaction? I was surprised by the reaction. You go on to Amazon.com and you type in that phrase and there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of paraphernalia sold with uh, with the phrase an almond doesn't lactate, including mugs and T-shirts. I'm glad that I, I've started a small business industry um, and helped grow the economy with that phrase. Um, but yeah, it caught me by surprise. There, there is a serious question, though, here. Dairy farmers want to move away from terms like cashew cheese or soy milk. FDA is trying to thread the needle. Well, you know, there is a regulatory obligation that the agency has with respect to our standards of identity. We have uh, standards of identity that do articulate what a food needs to constitute in order to be to have a certain phrase associated with it. So for example, what do you have what does it mean to be ketchup? How much tomatoes do you need to have in order to have ketchup? And how many tomatoes do you need? <laughs> I don't know, offhand. But um, but you know these these standards of identity have public health importance because 
people do impute certain nutritional content based on uh, the nomenclature being used to describe a food product. Uh, and if a food product's being described with a nomenclature where people think they're getting a nutritional content that they're not, that could have an adverse health impact. So in the case of milk, um, we know milk is fortified with calcium and vitamin D and has other nutritional uh, value. If, if something is calling itself milk and doesn't, doesn't have those nutritional uh, derivatives, someone could substitute it in their diet, not be getting that nutritional content and suffer adverse consequences. And in fact, we've seen cases in the medical literature where parents, for example, um, that fed their children rice milk, there were some um, there were some public health implications of that, some clinical sequelae. So um, one of the things we're asking is whether or not the use of the term milk needs to um, be be correlated with a certain nutritional value. So you know, a, a, a manufacturer might be able to meet those standards, for example, by fortifying the product. There's going to be constitutional issues on whether or not we could forbid um, a nut manufacturer from calling almond beverage almond milk because if you look at the dictionary the first term of milk relates to a lactating animal the second term of of milk is something derived from a nut so there is a speech issue here um that said if we have data demonstrating that consumers think they're getting a nutritional value that are not by the use of the term milk that's someplace where we might choose to enforce our, the existing standard of identity differently and that's the kind of data we're looking for that's the process we're going to be going through in terms of evaluating whether or not we should change the way we enforce that existing standard of identity your agency has been working with the department of agriculture on oversight of of lab based meat lab lab grown meat there's been somewhat of a public turf war here republicans wanted to give all the authority, essentially, to USDA. Yes or no, does the House-flipping Democrat make it easier to achieve dual oversight, dual jurisdiction? Well, we're calling it cultured meat now, so our lexicon has changed. Um, but um, I think that I've been working very closely with USDA, meeting with um, meeting with the Deputy Secretary, the Secretary. We've had other discussions. I think we are very close to having a proposal on how the two agencies are going to work together very closely and share jurisdiction here in a way that makes policy sense and in a way that's going to make scientific sense in terms of the different processes involved in developing these products and which agency has expertise in different areas of how these products are developed. So I feel very good that we're, on, we're in the final stages of having you know a joint framework that the two agencies can work on together. And my hope is that if if we go out publicly, um, you know, with some some robust proposal on how we're going to approach this going forward, um, that Congress would get def- give deference to the agencies to work out the fine print uh, on how we would implement that. And if it requires legislation down the road to fully codify that, if Congress wants to come in and codify what we do, obviously I'd welcome the input from Congress. But I would hope that Congress would give us the opportunity um, to work out these details. This is very new science. It's it's complex. Um, and I think it's best worked through by the agencies, and then we can you know, be in a better position to inform Congress if they want to legislate here. So I, just to translate, because I didn't hear a yes or no, you think Congress, regardless of who controls what chamber, should be deferential to the agency on something of this matter? Well, I think this is, I think this is a very new area of technology. We're often in the position of having to, to figure out how to regulate an industry after the fact. The industry gets started, products are out in commerce, and then we come in and try to regulate it after the fact. This is an, an example of where we're trying to lay out the regulatory parameters in advance of these products actually being available. So I think we have time to work this out. What I'm saying is I think I'm going to be in a much better position to, to inform Congress on what I think 
a proper framework should look like and be in agreement with the Secretary of Agriculture, go forward with a joint proposal to Congress that then they can come in and you know make a judgment whether or not they agree with us or they want to, they want to legislate in a slightly different way. I think right now anyone who acts, including Congress, um, on trying to legislate around this is going to be acting in the absence of you know, of a fuller understanding of what this process looks like because we're still developing it. Uh, you know, and if we, if we, the sort of experts in this who are working through these issues, are still trying to come up with what that framework looks like, um, I think we have a better, better opportunity to inform Congress, you know, six months from now, three months from now, um, than we do, do today. Attorney General Jeff Sessions has departed the Trump administration. HHS Secretary Alex Azar has been rumored as a possible replacement. I should say that his office has denied that he is interested, but you never know. If Secretary Azar is tapped to be Attorney General, would you want to be HHS Secretary? Well, I'm, I'm not going to engage in hypotheticals on hypotheticals other than to tell you what I told you before when you asked me this question um, about a year ago, which is I'm very happy in the job I'm in. Um, and I will say beyond that, I think I'm in the job that I'm best suited for. I mean, this is the place where I think I'm going to uh, you know, deliver the best work for the administration uh, and for the public health. You referenced our conversation on this podcast about a year ago. I asked you at that time to give a headline for what you thought the agency's work was. If you were picking the headlines as a, as a newspaper editor, you, you responded with more of an essay than a headline, but that's just a quibble. If you were picking the headline for 2018, with the year almost over, what would that be for FDA? You know, the headlines end up being issue-specific. I think that we've done some pretty bold things and things that are going to have a uh, pretty broad impact on the public health in a couple of different areas. I think the work that we've done uh, in um, in tobacco um, is notable, um, frankly, um, and I think it's going to have a meaningful impact in perpetuity. I think the things that we've done to try to shift the agency's orientation to the opioid crisis and think differently about what our role is with respect to that crisis um, are going to have a lasting impact. I hope they will. Um, And I think some of the work we've done to try to promote competition um, are also going to have a lasting impact. I look at it from from the standpoint, if you're asking me what I think are the most notable things that we've done, I look at it from the standpoint where I feel that we have changed the agency's relationship to important issues and where the agency is now thinking differently about its mission with respect to those issues. And those are three areas where the agency is now thinking differently um, with respect to those issues um, through the work that, we, you know, that we've done together, that, that I've done with the leadership of the centers. Uh, is, that, is that an essay? <laughs> it's, it's the headline and the first couple of paragraphs of the story. All right, good. We'll, we'll give you credit for overachieving and delivering more than, than the editor asked for. Let's, let's go through those in turn. So tobacco. And even beyond tobacco, e-cigarettes and what the FDA is is doing in that area, this is a real-life problem in a way that, say, Medicare payment regulations might not be. I get emails from readers who say, I am, I am worried about my teenage son or daughter using jewels, vaping in, in school. I, I don't get that same level of urgency around like the discrete regulations that are happening. You've said that FDA has data showing that use of, of vaping devices among teenagers is an epidemic. What do you know, and when will we find out about that? Well, that data is going to be coming out very soon. We're going to announce action next week, the the first stages of our action next week in terms of what we're going to do to try to address the epidemic of teen use of e-cigarettes. And I've already said the data shows um, a greater than 75% increase in the use of e-cigarettes year over year from 2017 to 2018 among high school 
students and about a 50% increase in the use of e-cigarettes uh, among middle school students. And this comes from the National Youth Tobacco Survey. This is early data from the National Youth Tobacco Survey where we looked specifically at the e-cigarette use based on concerning trends that we spotted. Um, you know, and and it's not just that use has gone up, but but regular use has gone up. So typically, in the past, the argument was, well, kids are experimenting with e-cigarettes, but they're not using it all the time. But the rate of use of regular use of e-cigarettes, which means using it 20 out of the last 30 days, has also gone up 30 percent. And I think the important thing to remember here, and why we're so concerned, is this is not; these are not kids who would have smoked cigarettes, but now they're using e-cigarettes. These are kids who would never have initiated on nicotine, and the survey data shows that. And in fact, the company's own data shows that. They've told us that. And we also now have data that shows that kids who initiate on nicotine through e-cigarettes, a proportion of them, are going to end up being smokers of combustible tobacco. So all the great what gains... What proportion? What proportion? You have to you look at different studies. The RAND study um, found... Uh, one, reported on some numbers in National Academies of Medicine study reported on some numbers. Our own PATH study has reported on numbers. So there's different studies that have reported different numbers with respect to what that proportion is. Um, but the but the bottom line is that if we are creating a whole pool of kids addicted to nicotine through e-cigarettes, some proportion of them are going to become long-term users of combustible tobacco that otherwise might never have initiated on tobacco. And all the great gains that we've made in this country, reducing smoking rates, and you saw the data that came out today showing smoking rates have continued to come down, and also stigmatizing smoking among young people so that we're reducing the pool of future smokers. All of that will be reversed or lost if we can't address the youth use of e-cigarettes. I believe the steps that we're going to take are going to be robust. They're going to be an initial set of steps. If we don't start to see these trends come down, we'll take additional actions. But we're going to be stepping into this market. And I'll, I'll just say, uh, I'll give one more minute if I may. You know, we said last summer when we announced our comprehensive policy, we saw an opportunity for these non-combustible products to be a way to migrate adult smokers off of combustible tobacco onto products that didn't pose all the same risks. And we put nicotine at the center of our regulatory efforts. Um, and we were, we, we were accommodative to the e-cigarettes insofar as we gave them extra time to come in with applications because we, we wanted to we wanted to help promote this opportunity for adult currently addicted adult smokers. But we said then, and we said all along, that it cannot come at the expense of addicting a whole generation of young people on nicotine through the e-cigarettes. And that's exactly what's happening. Um, we warned the companies. We told them that we wouldn't tolerate it, and we're not going to be tolerating it. You mentioned the moves that your agency has made. Last year, FDA decided to push the deadline for regulatory review of e-cigarette products to August 2022, almost four years from now. So putting that in plain English, e-cigarettes can now hit the market without approval from FDA. Why did you make that decision, and are you rethinking that now? Well, it was e-cigarettes that were on the market as of 2016 can continue to stay on the market until that date. Um, if I hadn't changed that date, the applications would have been due about a month ago or two months ago. Um, and there is the potential that these products would have had to come off the market a year from now. Uh, I, I still think we are trying to strike the right balance between trying to more rapidly migrate adult smokers off of combustible tobacco by regulating the nicotine levels in, those, in combustible cigarettes to minimally and non-addictive levels, while still providing an opportunity for adults who want to get access to satisfying levels of nicotine to do it through products that are less harmful. 
That means nicotine replacement therapy, the least harmful form of nicotine delivery, things like you know gums and patches that you might be able to buy in a pharmacy without a prescription. And we've put out new policy to try to promote development of those products. But it also could mean um, things like electronic nicotine delivery systems like e-cigarettes. Um, and if, you, if we could switch every adult smoker who is currently addicted to combustible cigarettes onto e-cigarettes, we will dramatically reduce overall morbidity and mortality. These e-cigarettes are not risk-free. They have risks associated with them. We have to fully characterize them. But we know they're less risky than smoking a combustible product. Um, the, what, what happened in 2018 in terms of the rapid rise in e-cigarette use would have happened regardless if I had never changed the policy because nothing would have changed. The applications would have been due in August. Um, the products would have remained on the market for at least another year, probably longer than that. So I don't think there was anything we did by extending those deadlines that had the immediate impact. What we couldn't foresee was the dramatic rise in popularity among these e-cigarettes among kids, and particularly one brand of e-cigarettes among kids. That's what is driving um, this increased rate of use. But you know, I, I feel that we are going to be stepping in quickly enough with action to try to uh, reverse these trends. I'm hopeful that we're going to be able to start to reverse these trends. Not immediately. It's going to take time. Um, but we're going to act forcefully, and what, what we intend to do within the next week um, is just going to be a first step. If we don't start to see aggressive action on the part of the sponsors themselves, um, and if we don't see our own action having an impact on these trends, we're, we were, we're willing to step in with additional measures to try to reverse this. We cannot allow um, the rate of use that we're seeing among kids to continue, and we cannot allow fully now 20% of all American teens to be users of e-cigarettes, which is as close to where we're going to be at when this data fully comes out. What are the additional measures that you could use? Well, I think the question first is, what are we contemplating? That's the first question you should have asked me. And then, and then the next question would have been, what else are you considering? Um, but I'm happy look. to ask those questions <laughs> if that will elicit more information. What, what additional actions are you contemplating? Well, we're, we have an issue of um, a problem with access and appeal. These products are too accessible to kids, and they're too appealing to kids. So we're going to be taking some measures to limit accessibility of these products to kids, looking in particular at sales of these products in retail establishments you know, gas stations and other convenience stores where tobacco products are traditionally sold, um, and considering taking the flavored products out of those establishments and making and making the flavored products only available in um, adult-only establishments, so things like the 10,000 vaping stores in, in the country. We're differentiating between cartridge-based systems and open tank systems. The open tank systems, by and large, are used by adults. It's the cartridge-based systems that are being used by the kids. Um, and so we would we would look to differentiate between those two products, and we would also look to take action to, um, you know, limit uh, curtail online sales unless the online sites are adhering to certain measures that restrict the ability of kids to be buying those products on on the online. The simplest being. Um, obviously, age verification, perhaps adult signature on delivery like you do for wine when you order wine online. Right now, a very small percentage of the e-cigarettes are actually sold online. Most of them are being sold in the retail establishments, uh, the convenience stores, and we think most of the places where the kids are getting access to these products are those those establishments. It seems to me, and this is a little bit of, I'm summarizing a little bit, but it does seem that, that convenience store clerks who understand it's not appropriate to sell a combustible tobacco product to the, to kids, um, there's there's less of um, 
you know, an inhibition about selling an e-cigarette product to kids, and so you see more sales. So we see establishments where we don't see violations on the combustible side, but we're seeing violations on the e-cigarette side. Um, and so we have to look at that channel. That channel is a place where these kids are getting access to these products, and the flavors are one of the primary elements that are making these products attractive to kids, the fruity flavors. You're talking about online sales being a small percentage here. Can you give a sense for how small? Yeah, I think you should talk to the individual manufacturers, but generally, and and we don't we don't necessarily collect data on that. I'm getting my information from the manufacturers, and I, I want to be careful not to reveal their confidential, commercially confidential information. But generally, it's less than 10% of their overall sales are coming through the online channel, and for some of them, it's quite small. So most of the sales are in brick and mortar establishments. You've mentioned meeting with these manufacturers. Those meetings are available on your public calendar. I'm curious if they have said anything in your meeting specifically that have changed what you are going to do in terms of enforcement, any positive ideas that they've contributed? I don't think that the com- the conversations have been helpful because they've informed me about things that where we where we didn't have um, where maybe we didn't have full insight before. They they have come forward with with data um, that that has been um, helpful. For example, you know some of the data that that kids who um, are initiating on e-cigarettes aren't kids who would have initiated on combustible tobacco actually comes from some of the manufacturers. They, they have some survey data they've, they've discussed that with us. So I've, I've gotten some additional um, helpful insights in terms of understanding the public health parameters of the problems. I think we have a good sense of what we're going to do. I think that there's areas of agreement with some of the manufacturers about what would be most impactful. So there's elements of what we're going to do that some of the manufacturers have you know, said we think these are good ideas, or we are, or we are going to voluntarily take steps that that comport with what um, you know the kinds of things that you're talking about. So I've I've been pretty public about where we're looking to try to take action. So I don't think that there's been there's going to be a surprise with the manufacturer with respect to what we ultimately do. Um, they've been constructive conversations. I can't I can't say that. Um, it's informed what we're going to do insofar as we heard a good idea and now we're implementing it. I think it's I think it's validated that the kinds of things we're looking at are also the kinds of considerations they're making insofar as, you know, they share some of these concerns. I think that they, they recognize now, I've been saying all year, but I think they recognize now that this is an existential threat um, to them because even if FDA were not to take robust action, and we will take robust action, um, it's more than likely Congress would step in here. So this is an existential threat to this business segment. They're not griping, though, that you've sent mixed messages, that that perhaps initially by cracking down on traditional tobacco and encouraging the shift to lower-risk products like e-cigarettes, that now you've changed tune too much by cracking down on e-cigarettes. But it's not, mis- it, it's not mixed messages. My message has been consistent all along. I see the e-cigarettes as an opportunity to transition to currently addicted adult smokers. I don't see it as an opportunity to addict a generation of young people on nicotine. And I told them all along at the outset, and I said this at my very first speech when I announced our original policy, this cannot come at the expense of addicting a whole generation of young people on nicotine. And I remember those words because I must have said that dozens and dozens of times. So this isn't a change in tune. I am still of the mind, and we are still of the mind at FDA, that these products represent a potential opportunity for adult smokers. We don't want to foreclose this channel entirely. I don't want to take action that's going to shut the e-cigarette industry down. Um, We see this as an opportunity. But in order to close the on-ramp for kids, we are going to have to narrow the off-ramp for adults. And in order to make it much harder for kids to get access to these products, we are going to have to take action that will put some speed bumps in the way of adults as well. That's that's just the reality. There's no way to do this without also 
creating some measures that's going to make it a little harder for adults to get access to all the products that they want. But quite frankly, I think most adult smokers, and I know most parents of teenagers, are going to be willing to see us take action that makes that accommodation if it means closing down the level of youth use that we're seeing right now. So you've talked about manufacturers being helpful, but you've also taken pretty aggressive moves. You raided the office of Juul, the the dominant vaping product. Why did you do that if the company came to the table to discuss plans? Well, look, there are two separate issues. We have an industry segment problem um, in terms of the e-cigarettes um, being you know too appealing and too accessible to kids, and we have company-specific problems um, in terms of certain products being more widely used by children. Um, and Juul is one of the products that's being very widely used by children, and we want to understand why. Um, we have our own internal estimates on the proportion of sales of their products that are going to kids. It's very high. Um, it's a high percentage of their overall sales that are going to kids, and we want to understand that. We want to understand whether there are marketing practices or aspects of that product that are making it more appealing to kids. And that was part of the information that we were trying to collect in those in those. Um, actions. You know, and I said that the companies have been helpful. They've been helpful in terms of answering questions and bringing forward information. Um, I, I, I think to date, and I think they are starting to take measures that are going to um, address aspects of this problem. But up until recently, they have not been helpful. I don't think that they've recognized that this is an existential threat. I think they could have stepped into the market with more forceful action much earlier in the year. Are they... Um, are they starting to take actions right now? I think I believe they are. You saw some actions recently. We believe some companies are going to take some additional voluntary actions. So I think they recognize it. I think they know we're serious. I think they know we're deeply concerned. I hope they share those concerns um, and are public health minded in this regard. Um, but but this has been only recently that we've started to see a change in in the behavior and more vigorous action on the part of the manufacturers. And that's why. You know, this isn't going to be something that I leave up to voluntary action. We're going to step in. We're going to put in place regulatory um, actions that can be enforceable, that are vigorous. I'm not leaving this up to voluntary action on the part of sponsors. Tevi Troy, who runs Jules Government and Policy Affairs Shop, was on this podcast earlier this year. I asked him a version of the question. I'm going to ask you. You two are friends. You wrote articles together. You worked in the Bush administration together. Now you are regulating him at Jewel. Do you think any differently about Tevi Troy? No, of course not. And I'm not regulating Tevi Troy. I'm regulating Jewel. And, and um, you know, Tevi um, has been um, very fastidious about not having conversations with me about um, about uh, these issues. Um, you know, my interactions with Jewel um, have been uh, through the meetings that I've had with them, the on-the-record meetings that I've had with them. Um, I would never second-guess someone's decision to uh, seek employment in, in a legal uh you know, in the legal area of commerce. Hmm. Well, in five years, you two will be able to write very interesting co articles, <laughs> like a, a less romantic Mary Madeline and James Carville. Um, I, I want to shift to other questions about the administration while we have time. And one would be how this administration views science. There have been widespread concerns that the Trump administration has been too receptive to the anti-abortion movement. I just wrote a headline on Politico Pulse, our newsletter, about HHS making more moves to curb access to abortion for customers of the Affordable Care Act exchanges. There have been studies on teen pregnancy prevention that have been canceled. There is an agency-wide review on fetal tissue research. And I've talked to officials, political appointees, career staffers who have said there's a, there's a war at times between being pro-life and being pro-science. Do you share those concerns? And if not... 
Do you understand why staff would have them? Well, I think with respect to the FDA, I look at the FDA, and I'm not I, I'm not following all the headlines that you are um, uh, uh, on all these other issues. I think with respect to the FDA, we've been very consistent uh, in adherence to good science-based decision-making. Um, I think my interactions with people in this administration have demonstrated uh, not only an appreciation for the importance of that principle, but an appreciation for the unique mission of FDA. And I think in part why I've, you know, believe that I've been able to advance a robust policy agenda across a lot of different areas um, that I believe is public health minded and it is advancing, you know, initiatives and programs that are going to have a public health impact like what we've done on tobacco, like what we've been able to do with respect to some of the changes we've made in terms of how we regulate opioid drugs is because there's people in key positions of this administration, including Secretary Azar, who have a deep understanding of FDA and a deep respect for its mission uh, and a deep respect for the science-based decision-making at the agency. And, and the Secretary has been exceedingly supportive of the agency uh, and exceedingly supportive of my ability to make independent decisions, you know, working with the professionals at, at the FDA. And I, 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 one of the things I think I talked to you about the last time we spoke and one of the lessons I learned um, when I worked with Mark McClellan was that it's very important that the, the decision-making and the ideas come out of the career staff. FDA is not an agency where you can engage in top-down policymaking, where I can sit in my office with a cabal of people writing guidances and policy documents and try to impose it um, on, on the, you know, the workings of the agency. My job is to set out you know, broad goals, parameters, public health goals that where I think we should be investing our time, try to get those resourced. But the ideas in terms of how we're going to achieve them have to come from the professional staff. Uh, and then it's my, uh, my job to work to make sure they get implemented. There was a recent survey by the Union of Concerned Scientists that under the Trump administration, many government scientists have been unhappy at places like EPA. That is not the case at FDA. If anything, happiness has been up under, under your leadership. One concern that some scientists have brought up to me is what the president has said at times about vaccines. You've been an unflagging champion, Commissioner, of the value of vaccines. President Trump at times has questioned their efficacy before being elected. After being elected, floated the idea of a vaccine safety commission. Have you ever spoken with the president about vaccines? I have not. What would you tell him? Well, I'd continue to speak privately about the things I speak publicly. I don't think that my advice um, privately uh, is private, uh, and private is any different than my advice in public. Uh, I, you know, support uh, support the role of vaccines. I think it's one of the greatest public health achievements uh, of of humankind. Our ability to develop vaccines for vexing infectious diseases. I think that the you know, the high vaccination rates that we've been able to achieve historically against pediatric diseases in particular have been one of the profound achievements of, of modern medicine. And to see those, um, those gains reversed by fears that I don't think are grounded in science, um, and you know, I'm talking particularly about some of the uh, criticism around the MMR vaccine where we see vaccination rates declining and we see local communities putting in place ordinances that allow people to um, choose not to vaccinate the kids on rationale that doesn't comport with science and doesn't doesn't uh, isn't directly related to uh, um, health concerns. Um, those are all deeply concerning to me, and you know I'll continue to be outspoken in in, in trying to promote uh, higher vaccination rates and trying to continue to support 
um, you know, the safety of vaccines and our regulatory process that oversees it. One of, you know, one of the things that I think I can do to try to affect this debate is just to reassure people that we are aggressive in continuing to look at the safety and efficacy of vaccines. And when we, we learn something, we make it known publicly. Um, no product's completely safe. There are side effects associated with vaccines. They're very rare, but there, there are side effects. We need to speak honestly about that. Since we're talking about the president, I want to talk about some of his other priorities that bring in your agency, fighting the opioid crisis. And this month, you teased a new approach to approving uh, some opioid medications. Can you be more specific about the time frame and the details of what that approach would look like? Well, we're going to announce a public meeting very soon where, where it's going to be sort of the first step towards trying to develop that framework and gather public input on what that would look like. And you know, this is a regulatory process takes time to unfold. We would ha- we, we're going to start it with a Part 15 hearing and put out a series of questions and open a docket and try to gather information. But the essence of it is that, you know, we, we've had criticism around the approval of selected opioids, and you've covered some of those criticisms. I, I think that underlying those criticisms isn't a question of whether this drug should have been approved or that drug should have been approved. I think that what underlies those concerns are concerns from people who say, in the throes of an opioid epidemic, a massive opioid epidemic, why do we need yet another opioid drug? And is this drug going to be differentiated in some way that is going to provide additional public health benefits on top of all the available therapy, or is it just another drug that could lead to addiction and abuse and misuse? Now, setting that said, Supply doesn't create demand. Simply having more opioid drugs on the market isn't going to create more addiction. But if you have more opioid drugs on the market that have that are more likable or have more potential for abuse and misuse, that could drive more more addiction. But I think we have an obligation from a public health standpoint to um, tackle the underlying question of should we have more opioid drugs? And if so, what should the standard be? And what I've proposed is asking the question of whether or not we should have a public health standard Um, around the approval of new opioids, where when we approve an opioid, we're looking at it against the overall therapeutic armamentarium and asking the question whether or not it's differentiated or providing some additional benefit over the existing drugs or whether or not it has a risk of being misused or abused or diverted because of the features of that drug, but looking at it in the context not just of that individual approval, which is generally how we look at drugs now. We look at an opioid drug against itself, but looking at it against all the other drugs within the category um, and whether or not it's going to have a role in the overall um, therapeutic approach to the treatment of pain. That's a much different approach. That's a different standard for how we would look at this. But I think Congress has told us they want us to be thinking about opioid approval and controlled substances in a different way. The Controlled Substances Act is the clearest expression from Congress that they want the, they want agencies to be thinking about the approval of these products differently. And we got affirmation of that in the recently enacted opioid legislation where Congress gave us a very specific set of authorities on how they want us thinking about opioid drug approvals that don't apply to any other therapeutic class. So I think we have an obligation to try to tackle this question head on. I don't want to be having these debates in the context of this approval and that approval um, and people criticizing the individual drug approvals. What I want to do is have an open, honest debate about what I think is the underlying question is, why another opioid drug in the setting of an addiction crisis? Shifting from opioids to drug pricing, it's been about four months since Secretary Azar recommended that you form a working group on drug importation. Industry groups have been resistant to this idea. Some Republicans have been critical, like Warren Hatch. It also seems like HHS hasn't been especially enthusiastic about this idea. Is that wrong? Well, I don't, I'm not tracking all the criticism. You probably have a better handle on that um, in terms of what you're hearing than, than me. 
we are we are moving forward with trying to look at a framework on how we would do this. And remember, this this applies to off patent, off exclusivity drugs that are in that are sole source drugs where they don't face competition, where you have a price increase that creates an access dislocation that that forestalls access for certain patients. So we are looking at so just to summarize what you just said. It's a very narrow. Group it's an of it's a narrow it's a narrow set of circumstances where you have a drug that's off patent where there's something that happens in the market with respect to the price that makes it harder for patients who need the drug to get access to it. So there is a, there is a bottom line public health concern um, in the setting of where we would employ this. And we are actively working through what that framework would look like, how we would do it, uh, how we would make the legal certification to operationalize it, uh, and how we would pl- apply a rationale to look at the drugs that we would seek to import in a very um, closed fashion so we can ensure end-to-end the end-to-end integrity of the drug as it comes into the United States. This would not be free-for-all importation. This would be a closed system where we would be working with an intermediary to import the drug to make sure that we can secure the supply chain as the drug moves from a foreign market to here. But look, at the same time that I've done this, I've also put forward policies to try to create a global a globally harmonized approval process for generic drugs to make it easier for generic drug companies to file what will hopefully eventually be a global application. So if you're a European, if you're a small European generic manufacturer and you're manufacturing in, in France, um, we want to make it easy for you to file the same application to the U.S. and bring that drug into the U.S. market. Um, that, I think, will be hopefully in the long run a bigger opportunity to get more competition into this market than trying to do you know, one-off importation when these situations arise. I want to prevent the situations where we have these sort of sole source drugs where you can have a speculator come in and take a big price increase and try to play what I say, what I call a regulatory arbitrage, hoping that they can sustain the price in the market long enough to return a profit before we can approve the next generic drug and bring in competition. So understanding that those are your goals, I, I still don't think that there's been a lot of public information here. Can you share who the members of the working group are, for instance? We're working with the leadership of HHS, uh, and you know we're pretty far along. I think that we're we're pretty far along in mapping out what the what the framework would look like. I can't give you a time frame in terms of when we would, you know, announce a, a final uh, um, framework when we might seek to import a drug. But in terms of working through the um, you know the mechanics of how this would work, what the legal issues are, we've been spending a lot of time on this. Um, you know, it's, it seems like a long time to you from the date that we initially announced this to now, and I forget when we announced it, probably three or four months ago. But in terms, I it was July nineteenth. Oh, yeah. so July. Okay, but in terms of just government, off the top of my head. just off the top of your head. <laughs> but in terms of government policymaking, um, working through, you know difficult issues, that's not a long time. Um, you know, these things um, do take time to put in place. And, and there's a reason why they should take time, because we're changing policy and we want to be deliberate about it. We need to be careful. I mean, FDA is a, is a complex agency with a complex statute, and there's a lot of implications if we get something wrong from the, from in terms of the public health. Your time is precious, so I'd like to close this podcast with a lightning round of quick questions, quick answers, if that's okay. I'll, I'll try to be as brief as I can be. It's a mandate for both of us. <laughs> Secretary Azar has said, I, I think he, he's said this directly uh, to, to reporters before, that every time he talks to President Trump, the president asks about drug pricing. Is there something that the president always brings up with you? You know, I, I don't have as many opportunities to talk to the president. When I do, it's usually about specific issues. And so the, the, the handful of opportunities that I've had time to be in the Oval Office and, and speak with the president, it's usually been the context of briefing him on something very specific. 
What's the public health issue that you wish a reporter like me spent more time writing about? That's a good question. Uh, I think nutrition. I think that the stuff that we're doing on the food side of our house uh, and with respect to trying to promote, um, trying to reduce the burden of chronic disease through um, through better nutrition sometimes gets uh, shorter shrift. I think the, the food policy has a profound impact on the public health. Um, you know, if we can have, if we can have small public health gains on an individual basis through our food policy, the the sort of distributed impact of that once you aggregate it over the entire population is enormous. Well, here you go. Here's a nutrition question. Much of the nutrition work that you have pursued has been in line with what the Obama administration wanted to do. In some ways, you've even gone further with uh, consumer education, for instance. Do you think a Democratic House will give you more backup on the nutrition changes that you want to see? Well, I haven't had any um, challenges uh, implementing the policies that we've pursued. I mean, we, we inherited a set of statute and, and policies that were midstream um, from the prior administration. We followed through on that. We felt that there was strong public health, health rationale for the new nutrition facts label for menu labeling. Um, and so we've continued to implement those policies, and we've been able to fully implement those policies. I think now what I'm doing is looking at what is the next set of nutrition policies. And you, you saw us put out our nutrition um, plan, our action plan, um, about six months ago. And that encompassed a lot of the things that we want to do, both individual policies as well as thematically, where you're going to see more policies from us, trying to use labeling, um, trying to use information that we would make available to consumers as a way to help reduce the overall burden of chronic disease. So there's more that we want to do. But I can't say that I've, I feel that I've been impeded impeded in any way in terms of achieving what I want to do on our nutrition agenda. Reporters like me spend a lot of time focusing on you, Secretary Azar, Administrator Verma. Who is the government health official that we should be giving more of the spotlight to? Well, when I think of um, when I think of FDA and, and, and I think about FDA a lot, I think that the, um, the folks who really make, make things happen um, that are very important to the agency. Everyone's important to the agency. And when, you know, when you walk through the agency and you look at division directors and medical reviewers, you know, they're the ones who are making the things happen on day to day. But I think the center directors really are the senior experts. They're my chief scientists. I, I, I make sure that I uh, meet with them, each one individually, every week. Um, and those interactions are where the policy gets done. Um, those are the hours that I enjoy the most. Uh, every week, if someone said, what's the best part of the job? It's meeting with the center directors. They are experts in their field. Uh, and I think that's sometimes not fully recognized how impactful they are. So I should inter- uh, interview and investigate the center directors. Got it. Well, you can um, interview them and speak to them nicely and ask them <laughs> respectful questions. You don't need to investigate them. <laughs> I always ask respectful and nice questions. Here's a version of a question I've heard asked of your female colleagues. How do you balance being a working dad with the job of being... FDA commissioner? Um, it's very hard. I'm away from my family during the weekend. It's very hard. It's the hardest part of the job is uh, is the fact that I'm away from my family. Uh, and even when I'm home on weekends, uh, you know, I'm spending one whole day working. So I don't think I'm balancing it very well. Could you balance it better in some way? Um, given the demands of this job, it's hard. These are 24-7 jobs. And I think, uh, um, I think unfortunately, um, that's the only way to do these jobs well. There's going to be a new planned community next door to FDA. I saw you at the groundbreaking. I watched a video of you with Maryland Governor Larry Hogan. Could you buy a home in that next door community to <laughs> save time? That community will be fully erected, I think, in sometime like 2025. So uh, I'm not making long-term plans uh, out that far. <laughs> Last question. 
When I sat down with CMS Administrator Andy Slavitt at, at the time in 2016, I think it was the first episode of this podcast, he made a comment like, I need to do something on drug pricing. If I don't, the next guy who comes in, the next person who comes in will say, what the heck was Slavitt thinking? What is the thing that you need to accomplish that if the next FDA commissioner comes in and it hasn't been done, you will feel like the work was unfinished? Well, look, I feel good about what we're doing. Our, our job in the pro- drug pricing debate is to try to bring more product competition to the market. I feel like we're, we're doing that successfully in terms of the, the reforms we're making on the generic drug side. I think where there is there's not as much recognition as the obstacles that branded companies face bringing follow-on innovation to the market in some of these, these um, drugs targeting unmet medical needs, where you see companies maintaining monopolies for longer periods of time and sometimes in perpetuity for drugs targeting unmet medical needs. And that lack of competition against branded drugs is maintaining higher prices for longer periods of time. And we have data demonstrating this now. I'm going to be publishing a study that we did, our own analysis, showing that when we look at a cohort of drugs from the early 2000s to the current cohort of drugs over a five or 10-year period, it's taking much longer to get the second and the third to market drug um, to the market now than it did 10 years ago. And there's reasons for that, and I think there's things we can do to address it. But if that if that trend continues, and if you see venture capitalists and companies pulling out of the market, if they don't think that they can be first to market, we're going to have significant challenges going forward keeping these drugs affordable. The other thing that I'm going to be focused on in 2019 is looking at ways to try to improve the overall economics of generic drug development. I think that that industry is facing some pressures. Um, a lot of them are commercial pressures that we can't affect, but I think some of them are regulatory. I think the multiple cycles of review are very costly to the industry. I think there's things we can do to make it less expensive and more efficient to file generic applications and get more um, generic companies into the space so you see more competition. And we're going to be very focused on some of those reforms. Also making high-value opportunities available to generic companies. That means you know, what we can do on biosimilars, what we can do on drugs that have REMS associated with them, what we can do on hard-to-formulate drugs to make it easier to genericize those drugs. Well, that's a lot of stuff to finish. No wonder you're working six days a week. <laughs> really could be working seven. But we will let you get back to your work. Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, thank you for joining Politico Pulse Check. Thanks for having me. That's it for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Commissioner Scott Gottlieb and his team for making time and space for this interview, and my colleague Sarah Overmall for making her long-awaited debut on Politico Pulse Check. And as always, thanks to producer Mikaela Rodriguez for touting her equipment and her time all over Washington, D.C. on Thursday. You can find Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast players. You can find me at ddiamond at politico.com. And you can find a new episode of Pulse Check coming to you very soon.